0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you'll remember that earlier this this month, England celebrated the the Queen's uh, platinum jubilee, seventy years of service to her nation, and that was a multi-day. Uh, celebration in England. Uh, there were parades, concerts. Uh, there was this, they called it the big jubilee lunch on this particular day. Millions of Brits got together. Some of them had a street party, some of them garden parties, some of them barbecues, and they had a lunch together to celebrate the Queen. And um, as I was watching some of the coverage of this, the reporters were asking uh, folks there in England, what does this mean to you? And there was a common theme that emerged. No matter uh, what the person looked like or where they were from, they were citizens of England. And, and they said, you know what this means to us? It celebrates our unity. And there's something now that we can uh, celebrate that brings us together. And then even the, even the queen, in her thank you note to the nation, after all this was over, she said, um, I hope this renewed sense of togetherness will be felt for many years to come. Now, the Bible says in Genesis 2 that it is not good for man to be alone. We're not made to be alone. We're not made to be isolated from each other, we're, we're made to be united. And there's a unity that's much greater than and longer lasting than national unity. And that's the unity that God gives us in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul the Apostle is talking about in Galatians chapter 3. I want to look at that passage with you this morning to see our unity in Christ that we are united by a common salvation and we are united by a common identity and we are to grow in this unity as an expression of the body of Christ so first of all we're united in a common salvation we're all saved the same way. By faith in Christ. We're not saved based on what we do. But rather by faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot earn God's acceptance based on what we do. And that's what Paul is getting at at the beginning of this passage when he's talking about the law here. At verse 23 he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive Under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. If you're in prison, you're not able to do what you want to do. And the law, Paul says, tells you what you ought to do. It makes demands on you, but it also reveals to you your weakness. You're not able to do what God says you ought to do. It's Not that the law itself is bad, but it shows that we are bad in the sense that we are weak, that we are sinful, that we are fallen, that we cannot live up to God's demands. The problem that was happening in the church in Galatia was that there was a group of Jewish Christians. Scholars call them the Judaizers and say that they were centered in Jerusalem. And what would happen when Paul would begin to preach the gospel to non-Jews, to Gentiles, these Judaizers would come in. And they would say, it's wonderful that you have put your faith in Jesus. That gets you started. But it's not enough. You need to do something to add to what Christ has done for you. And then they would say, now here's what you need to do. You need to follow the Mosaic law. You need to follow the Jewish law. You need to keep kosher. You, you need to um, follow the Jewish calendar. There's some festivals that you need to know about. You need to do these things. If you're a male, you need to be circumcised. And, 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 and Paul, who was, of course, the all-time great, he was an all-time Olympic gold medalist when it came to keeping the law. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He would say to these Gentiles, you're not going to find freedom. In keeping the law. And you're not going to be able to do it. Um, He quotes earlier, and it's not in our passage here, but earlier in Galatians 3, he quotes from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy, which says, Cursed is everyone who does not do everything that is written in this law. And so he says to these Gentile Christians, You're about to put yourself under this curse. You you are about to put yourself under a curse that Christ has taken already for you on the cross. Cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in this book. But then he says, Christ became a curse for us on the cross. So why would you want to put yourself under a curse But Christ has removed that from you through the cross. He obeyed the law perfectly in your place. He died the death of sinners in your place. He paid for the curse of the law. He says earlier in Galatians 3, you've been given the spirit of God as you've come to A living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This very Spirit of God dwells in your life. And he even mentions, you all have experienced (laughs) miracles by the Spirit of God. You've experienced this freedom of knowing the living God. Why do you want to go back to prison? Why do you want to go back to the law when Christ has set you free? Dane Ortlund in one of his books talks about in 2013 there was a prisoner. Actually, he says this prisoner was in Nigeria. And he came before the court and the judge dismissed all the charges um, against him and says, now you're free to go. But the man didn't want to go. I guess he'd gotten comfortable somehow in prison. And and he said, I'm not going. I want to go back to jail. So these uh, guards in the court had to restrain this guy from going back into his jail cell and bring him out of the courtroom. And Ortland says, this is a picture of what can happen to us as Christians if we're not careful. We find subtle ways of returning to the prison of our self standing before God. That's what the law is. The law is about my self-standing, attaining righteousness through my efforts. Attaining righteousness in God's eyes through my efforts, through the self. Prison of self-standing before God. That happens whenever we look to ourselves and what we have done for our standing with God. It can happen in many subtle ways. Have I prayed enough? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I given enough? In some circles, it's, have you served enough? Have you served the poor enough? Are you on the right cause of X, Y, or Z? Are you working enough for the right causes? Have I had the right kind of experiences, spiritual experiences, enough of these spiritual experiences? Am I using the right prayer book or the right liturgy? Have I repented enough for what I've done? Is my repentance sincere enough in the eyes of God? Have I somehow convinced God that I really am sincere? You see what all that has in common? It's looking to the self. This is what we slip back into if we take our eyes off Christ. Whenever we look to ourselves as the basis of our acceptance with God, we've let the law, as a guardian, take us back into the prison cell. Martin Luther says, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe this and everything is done. That's the scandal of grace. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. Believe this and everything is done in terms of your acceptance with God. What are we to believe? Who are we to believe? Of course... Paul makes it clear, we're to believe Christ, and we're to keep on believing in Christ, and keep looking to Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Justified, declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God. It's a courtroom term. The judge says, You are righteous, you are not guilty. We're declared righteous. By faith in Christ. By trusting in Him. And Paul goes on to say, we are made um, sons of God through faith. For in Christ Jesus, verse 26, you're all sons of God through faith. So this is the way, Paul says, to these Gentiles and to us, this is the way of being right with God. You have two choices. You can go down the road of self, law, Self-justification. Or you can look away from yourself to what God has provided in Jesus Christ. And he says that way is actually the way of Abraham. These again are Gentiles who are being influenced by Jewish Christians. These Jewish Christians, of course, revere Abraham as the father of their faith. But, But Paul is saying... If you really want to follow Abraham, follow this way of faith in the promise of God. And he makes this argument. He says, before the law even came, before the Mosaic law came, hundreds of years before this, over 400 years before this, God gave Abraham a promise. Abraham believed that promise. And when he believed, Genesis 15... It was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't have a law, the Mosaic law, so he could not have been righteous by the law. God declared him righteous when he put his faith in his promise. His promise that through his offspring the whole world would be blessed, even the Gentiles. And so, Paul lifts up these two ways. The way of self, looking to self, trusting in self, the way of trusting in the promises of God that are in Christ Jesus. To trust in the promise, to trust in a promise is to trust in a person. Right? Josie and I have been married, I got this right, I did the math, 24 years. So next year is a big one for us. I got that one on my radar. (coughs) So, we've been married now for 24 years. Next year's a big anniversary. May 16th. That's right. Right. It's a tricky because her birthday's May 18th, so I'm always getting them confused. So, first the wedding, then the birthday. But on that day, 24 years ago, we what bound us together in our wedding ceremony, what What united us as a married couple in that wedding ceremony was the vow, was the promise. We made promises to each other, and I believed her promise because I believed in her. Because I had discovered in getting to know her, she was a good and trustworthy person. And so I was able to believe the promise. Because I knew the person. God has made promises to you in Jesus Christ. God has revealed in Jesus his character, who he is. He's revealed his goodness. At the cross of his son, he's revealed his sacrificial love for you. And God is saying to us, believe me. Believe me, the the one you've seen revealed in me at the cross. Believe the promise that you are forgiven. Believe the promise that you do have the hope of resurrection. That after this life, because I raised Christ from the dead, I will raise your body from the dead and give you eternal life. Believe me that I can give you and I have given you the gift of the Holy Spirit to energize your life so you can live a life that's pleasing to me. The Holy Spirit, one scholar says, doesn't give us perfection. But the Holy Spirit is a divine infection of the love of God which enables us to follow the law of God. This is where, and this is a side note here, but this is where I think it's important to understand just a little bit. This is a Another sermon, but I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here. When Paul says we're not under the law anymore, he's not saying then we can live however we want. I mean, in our gospel, Jesus says you're to give your life completely to me. It's not we can live our life however we want. But for Paul, the new law is the law of love energized by the spirit. And one scholar puts it very helpfully. This is uh, George Ladd. He said, Christ brought the law as a way of righteousness to an end. But the law, the moral law, as an expression of God's will is permanent. And those who are indwelt by God's Spirit are energized by a love that enables them to fulfill the law, not perfectly, but to make progress in fulfilling the law as those under the law never could. It's an internal work, not external. By the Spirit of God. By the love of God. Because God has said, here's who I am at the cross and at the resurrection. Will you trust the promise? So this is how we are all saved, brothers and sisters. If it was about legalism, then we could compare ourselves with one another and say, oh, well, I'm doing a better job than so-and-so, or this person has greater standing with God than I do. And that can begin to create divisions and factions in the body of Christ. But no, we are all saved the same humbling way looking away from ourselves and looking to Christ and trusting in His promise. The promise there in Christ Jesus. We're all saved the same way. We have a common salvation and then we have a common identity. We are in Christ. That's our identity. We are in Christ. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. (laughs) You're walking around wearing Christ. Christ is your identity. This is given to you in your baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of this inward grace of being united to Christ by faith. And so we're to grow up in our baptismal identity. We're to wear Christ. We're to walk around in Christ. And then Paul Makes this radical statement. This is a, this sentence contains TNT. I mean, this, this is explosive what Paul says at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. What's your identity? In Christ. And you all have that in common you know in in Paul's day a Jew a Jewish person could rightly a Jewish Christian could rightly be proud of their heritage that they were part of this old covenant and that God had given them so many riches as part of that heritage and and, and Paul himself was proud of that heritage but when he met Christ he realized That doesn't make a difference in terms of my standing before a holy God. And and, and so there is no difference in terms of our standing with God, he's saying, whether you're a Jew or a Greek. Slave or free, I mean, these were people, the the slaves and, 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 and females in Paul's day were at the lowest rung of the social ladder. But he says something radical here. In terms of your standing before God, you are equal with a free person. You're a woman. You are equal with a man. That's your core identity. And we're to grow up in this identity. If we're in Christ, we're all equal in God's eyes and we're all united together. Christ is the center. Christ is the hub. And we're all connected to Him. And by being connected to Him, we're connected to one another. That's our identity. We're in Christ. And we're to grow in that identity. You know, in in our culture today, people are obsessed with identity. Because identity answers a fundamental question that we all have. And that is, who am I? And our culture says some gives various answers to this. You know, some people say, "Well, the most important thing about you, your core identity, is your sexual attractions." Thanks to Freud, people say that now. Freud in popular culture. That's that's who you are fundamentally is your sexual attractions, and so people are defining themselves around that. Other people say no. That the most important thing about you is the color of your skin. That's your core identity, and you you see the world through that. You experience the world through that. That is the most important thing about you. Other people will say, well, no. And this is uh, we all know it. A big way that people define their identity is through politics. What's your political affiliation? You red. You blue. How red? How blue? That defines your reality. That's your meaning in life. That's what energizes people. Politics. We become so obsessed with identity. Some people even find their identity in their hobbies. You see what happens when we begin to move our identity away from God. Other things are going to fill the void. So some people start to talk about their hobbies in terms of this is, the, this is who I am. I, I like fly fishing, so I listen to fly fishing podcasts. Sometimes I'm like, am I listening to a church service here? Am I listening to a spiritual talk? Because I've heard some people talk, and I love it. I love this hobby, but some people talk about it in such reverential terms, like this is my community, and people who are not part of this community, they're just not going to get this. This is how I connect to the universe, is through fly fishing. So, we become obsessed with identity. And it's not that these things don't matter. Of course they do. They do make a difference. But Paul reminds us that as Christians, the ultimate answer to the question, who am I, must be, I'm in Christ. I belong to Him. And those other identities, I'm going to begin to see them in light of, I'm in Christ. I need to know what it means for my politics that I'm in Christ. What does Jesus have to say about it? And his answers are going to be different than probably the discourse of the world. I need to know what it means that I'm a white male, but I'm in Christ. And how that helps me understand the world and interact with people who are not like me. Because my overriding identity is in Christ. And so I can relate to people who are different from me. I have a connection with them that transcends these other identities. And by the way, will go on for eternity. Unlike these other identities that the world says is so important. And we should fight them. So we can relate to one another. We can love one another. No matter our age or our economic status or our background, whether we are sick, whether we're in good health, whether we're able-bodied or disabled, we can love one another. Yes, it's complicated, but guess what? Family's complicated, right? We can work through things if we keep at the center Christ. Christ. This week I read a testimony of a woman as a young college student. She came to the brink of despair. She had suffered abuse as a child. She self-medicated through drugs and alcohol. She got to the point in college where that wasn't working for her anymore. And she said, I'm going to give that up. And she was in such because she was no longer self-medicating. She was in such psychological and even physical pain. She said, I found myself one day crumpled on the floor in such phys- physical pain that I could barely move. And she saw a Bible and she picked it up and she opened it up to 2 Corinthians 5, which talks about the new body, awaiting the new body. Or Second Corinthians 15. And she said, that hope just left me completely undone. Or something beyond this life, something that ultimately can heal me. So she said, after that, she went into a church. She said, I'm going to quote here, I walked into a suburban Baptist church full of strange, unfashionably dressed conservative Christians. I was a Marxist, a feminist, foul-mouthed, chain-smoking, desperate person. She said, the love I received in that place is the reason I will always defend the rights of Christians. These were the kindest people I'd ever known. They loved me on principle. And that love saved my life. That's a church that learned to look past labels and see the person. A church that put Christ at the center and said, you need what we need. We all need it. We all need Him. We need Jesus. He'll give you the peace. He'll give you a new identity. God help us to grow as a church. I think we're pretty good at this. But I think we can grow. And there's so much tension around these issues. We need to grow in keeping Christ at the center. Jesus at the center. The center of our salvation. The center of our identity. The center of our life together. Amen. Lord, I do pray that you help us to do that. We thank you for this gospel that brings people together. We thank you for the spirit that energizes us to love one another. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you'll convict us of places where we've constructed identities, false identities, or made idols out of identities. And put them ahead of This fundamental identity of being in Christ. Help us to grow in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. But would you please stand and let's recite the words of our faith. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God,